Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Institute Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important for those governing organizations. My guest today is Judy Samuelson. Judy is the founder and executive director of the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program and a vice president at the Aspen Institute. Judy led a 10-year campaign to challenge conventional thinking in boardrooms and classrooms about the purpose of the corporation. She produced the Aspen Principles of Long-Term Value Creation to challenge short-termism in business and capital markets, and is promoting a set of principles designed to disrupt the status quo in boardrooms about the design of CEO pay. Judy's career spans working in the California State Legislature, banking in New York's Garment Center, and directing the Ford Foundation's Exploration of Impact Investing. She's a Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio Fellow, a director of the Financial Health Network, and the author of The Six New Rules of Business, Creating Real Value in a Changing World, which was published earlier this year. Welcome, Judy. Thanks for having me, David. We're glad to have you here. I've admired your work for a long time. As I think I mentioned when we first started talking, I became aware of the Aspen Institute through my long-term readership of The Atlantic magazine. I know you guys do some work together. Would you mind giving us a brief overview of your work at the Aspen Institute? Absolutely. The Aspen Institute's a little bit of a mystery to a lot of people. Um, maybe we kind of like to have it that way. You know, it gives people an opportunity when they show up to learn something new, I think. Um, but our work is one of many programs that's housed at the Aspen Institute. The work I lead, the program on business and society at the Aspen Institute is really about aligning business decision-making with the long-term health of the commons. And we do that through both dialogue, taking kind of on, taking on a topic that may, it's usually embedded in some kind of system that needs to be unpeeled. We need to kind of bring people together. We're not a debating society. We bring people together who are interested in the question that is being framed and may have different life experiences, hopefully do have different life experiences, different perspectives on the problem, but share a concern for making progress. And so our mandate is really about, as I said, aligning business decision-making with the long-term health of society. And so we, we engage in dialogue and then also in programs to support change agents inside the business sector. It's interesting thinking, and I, I think it's it's probably come more into the mainstream recently, perhaps not enough, but still more in the mainstream. But I know you've been at it for quite a while. In the book, you use this term market civitas uh, when talking about rethinking risk. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about this idea and the implications it has for the work that you're doing and, and the work that's being done, say, in the boardroom. No, I think that I use that term, and it came out of a dialogue that uh, we ran in in Aspen. I, I work, we our program works out of New York, but we use Aspen, the conference center there, and it's a great time for people to kind of step back and think more deeply about where we're headed. And it came out of a dialogue that in, included everybody from Sally Blount, who was in the dean at Kellogg at Northwestern, to a number of business executives, people who had both been at the table with us for a long time and who were who were kind of new to our work. And it was essentially the, the notion arrived that we were looking for something beyond what was tangible today. And that we were looking for business 
leaders who had a, an ability or maybe kind of a flash of recognition sometimes of the need to kind of work at a different level and embrace what was truly in the interest of the commons. And it, it's almost a spirit of market civitas that we were talking about. And so, and I write about a number of examples of this in, in the book. I, I write about the moment when Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, after consultation with a number of his employees and really kind of thinking deeply about this himself, this was in the wake of a couple of shootings that had happened in Walmart stores back in 2019, came to the conclusion that they really needed to move the needle on this in terms of their own policies and stop selling handguns and ammo, which was a, a big decision for them in terms of their interface with lots of customers who depended on Walmart to, to serve them in that respect. But it was like a, a moment when he understood that there was a bigger principle at play for him, the safety of his employees, a sense that he needed to make a move that was maybe not in the short-term commercial interest of the enterprise, but wasn't well-defined in terms of how this would fit into the competitive environment either. So I think there are many executives that have those moments. I write about Roy Vagelos at Merck when he decided to go ahead against the, the recommendation of his executive team and to actually produce a drug that had no commercial value, but had great public health value. It was a cure for river blindness. And Merck is still producing that drug, which is a incredibly courageous and long-term investment by the company. In his sense, he knew that this would pay off because he his scarce resource is scientific talent and to fail to produce something that they had uh, the intellectual property for that was key to the why he was able to attract these scientists. He was very clear about that. Others, I think, are less clear. My, I write about, you know, companies like Starbucks and Levi Strauss that seem to have built into their DNA a concern that goes beyond the immediate commercial interests of the enterprise. So I think that's what we're talking about here is the ability to really think deeply about what's in the interest of the health of society, not just the immediate commercial interests of the enterprise. Yeah, I thought that was a really effective story that you told because there are decisions that businesses have to make at times that aren't obviously contributing to the bottom line and may never contribute to the bottom line when taken in isolation, but have a much bigger impact. And I think this, this gets to uh, an expression that you've used a couple of times now, commons. And I know that in the book, you talk about systems thinking and, and, and looking at systems. So let me take that to another thing that you highlight in the book, which is this notion that corporations are given the license to operate. And they're given that license by this big system, by this big commons. And I wonder why it's important for us to remember that they have that license, but that it's given by the commons. It's critically important. It's also important to know that this is a choice. How it is, how it is utilized is the choice that is made by the executive. We've been through, there's a, a long history of that license to operate. When, when corporations were first granted the license in the United States, they actually had to serve a public purpose. Hmm. Kind of roll back a little bit more and think about why we have corporations to begin with. They exist to get things done that we can't do with our own resources or the capacity of our family and friends. They are the backbone of both public resources and, and infrastructure, and of course, private investment for all kinds of ends. But it's a way of amassing both capital and, uh, and talent and 
to you know, essentially roll up contracts that are needed to be able to do something that's complicated. And so we need corporations. Corporations are, we take for granted, I think, a lot of the public goods that corporations create. So we get back to the license to operate. I mean, it is both an expression of what the executive actually, when they're using it well, it's both an expression of what the executive is very clear about what is their purpose and you know why do they exist and what do they intend to accomplish? But then we, the public, are actually in the position of granting that license or taking it away. That doesn't mean that's easy to do. The presumption is that once you have a license, you get to kind of do with it what you will, as long as you stay within the bounds of the law. But it is it is a an expression of at the level of states, you know, they have different states have different ideas about how that license ought to be pursued. Where it gets complicated is that most of our ideas are wrapped around the legal structures of one state in particular, Delaware, which is the you know licensor of most public companies in the United States. And the the practices and protocols and ideas around governance that exist for those large public companies tends to dominate our thinking. But at its basic essence, we, the public, grant corporations a license to operate and have the ability to curtail that license as well. You use another expression, which we do hear talked about, um, I think more commonly today, which is a business's purpose. And I think it's an interesting conversation to talk about the difference between the purpose of a business, which I think you had said was we come together to, to achieve something. And, and, and I use the expression businesses exist to take risk and it's taking risk in pursuit of, of that purpose. But what is the difference, if any, between the purpose of a business and the business's goals? I think at its best, the purpose is about setting intentions. Uh, you know, Larry Fink, of BlackRock, who has used his his bully pulpit as probably the you know leading the institution that owns more public stocks in the U.S. and or in, and to some extent globally as well uh, than virtually any other financial institution or asset manager. You know, he talks about the need to have a purpose that goes beyond that essentially serves a public purpose. I mean that that the intentions need to go again beyond kind of the limited kind of walls of the business or the the commercial benefits of the of the business. I think it's about setting intentions. I mean, I go back to the example of Roy Vagelos at Merck. He was clear about what is most critical for the company to survive. And I think the other aspect of purpose is that it needs to be anchored into where the company really lives. It needs to be anchored into what that company is able to do, intends to do clearly. But, you know, it, it needs to be linked back to the business model. It can't be, you know, I kind of, you know, there was a point at which uh, when I was writing this book, you know, uh, WeWork was falling apart and, and we were making fun of that WeWork's purpose, stated purpose, which was something like, you know, to elevate the world's consciousness or something like that. Uh, well, that's not a purpose. That's a slogan, but it's not linked back to the real enterprise. And so the difference between business purpose is, yes, yeah, setting intentions out there, some kind of more elevated notion of what we aim to do. And then business goals are the setting of those goals in order to, you know, uh, move in, in, in alignment with that purpose. And so I think they're two very, very different things. 
And it's helpful, I think, to, to make sure people understand that difference. I think back to a program I used to run for high school students through Rotary that was about ethical decision-making and how you go through a framework of making decisions that are ethical. And one of the things that uh, the creator of that program, I, I, I believe this is a term that he made up called teleopathy, which in essence translates to a sickness around goals. In other words, goal blindness. And, and I guess there's another way of expressing that, which is ends justification of all means. And so I think when we think about our business purpose, you had talked about it's more than just operating within the rules. And I think that that's, uh, that's really helpful for people to go back and ask those questions about whether the goals are overriding the purpose. And, and you mentioned earlier in your introduction about focus on CEO pay. That's a pretty interesting place to discuss that. Yeah, the discussion of purpose reminds me of a professor at NYU who teaches a class that brings together people from both the law school and the business school. And it, she, you know, she teaches about corporate purpose and she has all the students actually take out a license for a business. And they find that there is a form for them to fill out and they actually have to fill in a blank that says, what is your purpose? Now, if you were to ask your accountant or your lawyer, you know, what should I put there? They would usually say, put in whatever the law allows, basically. Interesting. So her point, of course, is no, this is your opportunity to say what you intend to do. Why are you really creating this business? What is it you would like to, why, are, why do you want this license to operate? So I do think that that's an important kind of teachable moment and a reminder of how important it is and how much agency the executive, meaning the business that actually has to, you know, engage here in, in, a, in a way that's meaningful to the public. In the book, you start to talk about capital. And we, in our economic studies, always talk about the scarcity of capital. In the book, though, you say capital isn't scarce, and perhaps even financial capital is becoming destructive. Can you elaborate a little bit on that idea? Well, it's certainly not scarce, you know, it's abundant. You know, I if you look at the last 10, 10 years of companies going public, there are any number of instances. I mean, think recently in the last several years, I think Spotify and Snapchat, they go public, but they go public in name only. They go public in order to provide an, an exit for their early rounds of private, private investors. So both the rise of you know, private investment markets and different kinds of pools of capital provides options. But the fact is that Companies today, our largest enterprises, the ones who are kind of at the top of the valuation tables for the stock market, are capital light. They actually don't require that much capital to operate. And so they may need capital at a point in time, but they don't need to replenish it. And they don't have to come back to the capital markets, to the public markets to continue to grow. So you know, if you kind of go back to the time when General Motors was at the top of those tables, it was a constant flow of capital, you know, a million employees and, and uh, factories and all of that. But in the modern manufacturing where it's distributed around the planet, we may operate through contracts like Apple does to, to actually manufacture our product. Capital is not that important. And, you know, tech companies have very few employees and, uh, and not much infrastructure. So why do we, you know, the question, of course, then is why do we spend so much time talking about financial capital? You know, it dominates our, you know, sensibility about what's important. It it dominates uh, business schools I and mean, classrooms. You know, the finance uh, classroom is the, it still commands the most real estate in business schools. And it, 
reminds us that we kind of take stock of what is in fact absolutely essential. What is scarce? What are we building our company around? And as you start to think about that in contemporary terms, other things emerge that companies are being run in much more of a sense of kind of an ecosystem today where they have to get a lot of things right. I don't particularly like that term stakeholders, but just leaning into the financial markets is not the is not necessarily the best plan for long-term success. We built a lot of the infrastructure of companies to still elevate the financial markets, especially by how we pay executives. But um, that's not necessary. That's a that's a design question. And we could design the company to elevate other much more important long-term inputs to the enterprise. And, and I found it very helpful. You mentioned the not liking the term stakeholders. I found it very helpful lately to equate stakeholders with capital providers, and, and that's capital in all forms, which includes something called freedom capital, which is the ability to pursue your purpose based on rules that, that surround you. And if you're not playing well in that space, you may have regulators or others withdraw that freedom capital. Um, it's not yes. financial capital, but ultimately it might get to that place early in the book. You start talking about the amount of intangible value there is in publicly traded companies. It's obviously harder for us to to measure that with private companies, but the intangible value is a reflection of today's world versus maybe the world that you had described with the heavy physical capital requirements where, where there was more dependency on the financial capital that came in to fund those. Does this change the way in which corporations should be thinking about risk? I mean, is risk different because of the amount of intangible value that companies have as opposed to the physical capital? It's all about relationships now. It's the relationships with the employees. And so, you know, executives are called to think about the culture of their enterprise and whether people want to work there. I mean, that's one of the conversations that's dominating the markets today is, you know, this moment in which what does it actually take to get somebody to show up for work? I don't know that I ever remember that conversation in the time that I've been in my working life. Financial capital is, you know, continues to be a lot of noise, but these complex, you know, attenuated supply chains, you know, the natural capital, you know, that supply chains are all dependent on some, some form of natural capital and, and labor markets, complex labor markets, but, you know, that's become a much more dominant piece. And so this is about relationships. I mean, customers are always important. And of course, that's always been a relationship, but there's greater recognition today. And I write about, for example, Southwest Airlines, you know, that always understood, you know, Herb Keller, who built that company and the shareholders made a lot of money off of it if they stuck with that stock, that employees had to be at the center in order to realize the bond that he was trying to build with customers around, you know, that we're going to arrive on time and you're going to fun fun while you're flying. And that meant that the employees wanted to show up, Mm. had to want to show up for work in order to realize on those those promises. I think it's something like 85% of valuation today is related to things that we are, are difficult to measure. They do roll up to things that kind of roll off the tongue a lot today about trust and you know, the license to operate, we already talked about, but, you know, the ability to attract and retain talent is something that's discussed a lot. So it is a more complex domain. And we're looking for executives who understand that, who understand the array of things that they need to be able to manage effectively too. This sounds like it relates directly to a statement that you made about corporate responsibility now being defined outside of the business gates. Is that what you mean by, by this? 
Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, when I when I got out of college, which is a long time ago now, uh, and went to work in, in, in the state capital in California, in Sacramento, there was always this idea that there, you know, businesses have two responsibilities, you know, it's create jobs and pay your taxes. Well, first of all, we don't take either of those for granted today. A lot of companies have figured out how to outsource their labor. Even in this moment, you know, we're nervous about whether or not there will be sufficient jobs. And of course, there's a lot of comp- conversation about how jobs will become more automated, maybe sooner than later, if we have a harder time bringing people back to work. So that's that's still a dynamic conversation. We certainly don't take tax payment for, for granted. But today, the corporation is no longer has a simple kind of list of things that are responsible for. The responsibilities of the corporation are set way outside the gates. They're set by a host of actors, many NGOs, some governments, but partnerships and complex set of players using social media and the like, and who are perfectly happy to essentially harness your brand in order to make some kind of larger point to use your platform and your capacity to address a complicated problem that you may have a piece of, but you certainly don't control it and don't feel that is your full responsibility. So whether it's, you know, the use of plastics or it's your role in some complicated supply chain, McDonald's always comes to mind because McDonald's has been the target of literally dozens of campaigns anchored by large environmental organizations that know that McDonald's supply chain is involved in virtually anything it is that they feel is at risk. So we're talking about species extinction from overfishing to how beef is is raised and the the implications of of, um, the environmental impacts of the beef industry. So that's the reality today. It's not that McDonald's is responsible for the whole Magella here, but they are a, they're well positioned. They have uh, an ability to bring other people to the table through their own supplier relationships, and they become a natural target. But a third party is really setting the goal there. They're saying what the responsibility is, and then harnessing the players who are instrumental in, in making progress toward that goal. I think you talked about education. Uh, in the business schools, but you and I were both in graduate school about the same time when rational expectations, the market god, and the University of Chicago way of thinking led by Milton Friedman was dominant. Yeah. And I don't see that that, in particular, when I think about how many people in college take only an introduction to economics course, where you have to be taught the simple free market rules because the rest of it gets too complex. I mean, that's a building block. But if you stop there, you miss out on a lot of what's been learned since that time. So I'm wondering, where do you think business education is heading? Because I know this is an issue that's important to you, that, that, that this corporate purpose being maximizing returns for shareholders isn't healthy in the long run. So, so where is business education heading? Is there a change? Well, first of all, let's step back and remember it's a massive endeavor. Even though there's a lot of people who just take an economics class when they're in college, business education represents something like 25% of undergraduate degrees. Mm -hmm. And I think that wholly undercounts the number of econ majors in schools that actually don't have a business degree. I think if they did, there would be a lot of people that would bail out of economics and take (laughs) business. But it is something like, and it has been for a long period of time, it's you know, the largest undergraduate major and it's at the graduate level. It's also, you know, it's neck and neck with teaching credentials. It's something 20, 25% of, of graduate uh, degrees as well. 
So there's a lot of people for whom it is so ubiquitous that we call it the education of our citizenry. It in fact is deeply influential. And in the course of a business degree at the MBA level, we're able to measure what somebody thinks coming in the door and how they're influenced by their business education. And, and it was disturbing years back when we monitored this for several years in a row and found that, you know, MBAs would enter thinking kind of like consumers, you know, that here's a the, the CEO's job was to attend to all these different things, but exit they exited thinking like profit maximizers. And so that was a wake up call for us, certainly. And for, I think, a lot of business schools that started taking this on. But, you know, this is academia. It's hard to change. It's it's built into the DNA and the, the narrative and the, the, the kind of tools that are taught that are designed to measure things in a straightforward kind of technical kind of way. So I think some of the things are ahead of them are stepping back and saying, these tools, whether it's discounted cash flows or you know capital asset pricing model, these kind of metrics that get used in business schools, they're tools. They're a way of opening up your mind and thinking about value. But it's by far the most important or the only tool. It's there is no one answer here. You know, value and sustainability and things like that, they're a destination. It's about a mindset and you want your students to be prepared to enter a world of complexity, of no simple answers, of the importance of listening, you know, across a diverse array of both employees and customers and to understand this kind of license and how to use it well. And then, of course, as we're facing very complex problems that business has a role to address, whether it's climate change or inequality or, or you know, kind of pick your existential crisis of choice. Moving the needle requires us moving back from the simplicity of the shareholder primacy model and thinking about how do we actually capture the extraordinary capacity of the business to drive change. And, and that's what this is about, is understanding business is a incredibly capacious organization. We need it. We need kind of, it needs to be in the pool. You know, it needs to be in the, um, it needs to be working in concert with society to make change. And that requires leaders who are able to think differently about the role and purpose of the enterprise. And I think almost no one at the undergraduate level is taught complexity economics. Um, and complexity economics is just what you were describing. Interesting. That's is that a term of art? Is that a well? No, that that should tell you uh, someone as connected as you are how little it's been able to pervade thinking. But it is systems thinking related to economics. There's a there's a great book called The Origin of Wealth that Eric Beinhacker wow. wrote. It's one of those books that's really worth reading to understand how value is truly created. And it's not created. We like to choose teams, right? We we. We have our sports teams, we have our corporate teams, we have our political teams, we like teams. But what's found out in most of the stuff is that the notion of competition only is less successful than a combination of competition and collaboration. And you've got, I think, in a good emphasis uh, in this area. And the expression that you use is co-creation. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's, you know, I think if I'm if I read correctly in the book. Co-creation is becoming more important because people are starting to think that this license to operate is at risk. Can you tell me a little bit about co-creation or tell us a little bit about co-creation and and what your thought is on that? 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, the old rule was all around competition. You know, competition is a driver of innovation and growth. And but you know, when the system itself is at risk, and you know, the the kind of creation of value requires bringing people partners are kept together across the supply chain, and that doesn't just mean business partners, although that's a clear part of it. it it also means, you know, the ability to work with NGOs and and uh, and governments and 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 competitors. Because if you know, think of it in fishery terms. If the fishery is overfished, and I write about uh, McDonald's specifically in this in this respect, where they were an important actor in kind of resetting the rules and protocols in uh, in the the North Atlantic up in the Barents Sea area, where the white fish that McDonald's depends on that that to be able to continue to harness you know the supply that they need in order to um, meet demand they have to kind of step back and say wait a minute we're going to have to assemble the entire everyone who touches this fishery we can't do it alone and so that is that's an example of co-creation you needed an NGO at the table an NGO that was willing to work with business you also ironically needed an NGO to elevate this question and to target the business in order to start the conversation. So the role of media, the role of social media plays a background, but when the system is at risk, you can't solve it one company at a time. We know this today with, with the conversation about climate, that if you roll up all of these net zero commitments that companies are making, it still doesn't add up to what we need in terms of really set, resetting the price of carbon and letting the markets work you know, wholesale here. So uh, there's a lot, that, a lot that's required, but we're seeing more of a willingness of companies to be able to, you know, step in and work with competitors and work with agents that are typically not, you know, invited into their boardroom to address some of these questions of the commons. We've got about a minute left, and I, this may be unfair of me to ask you this with just a minute left, but about what in your work are you most hopeful? I'm most hopeful now about the role of employees. I think that that is a bright spot that is getting brighter um, as employees understand, as, as new kinds of employees entering the workforce, younger generations, but you know, I think all employees are, are part of this, uh, are able to use their voice in a new way. You know, they don't, employees today don't necessarily look at you know, as I did when I was entering, the work is over here and play is over here. You know, it's all one complex system. Social media breaks down the barriers. And employees today are the window into both risk and opportunity. They extend outside the gate. They bring the outside in. And they are not shy about expecting their enterprise and their executives to speak to the concerns that they have that, you know, sit outside outside the business. And so, we're seeing lots of examples. I just wrote about um, one that hit us last week or a couple of weeks ago when we found out that there were something 1,100 McKinsey employees who had actually called on the executives to start saying, what is the nature of our relationship with fossil fuel companies? We've served dozens of them. What's the nature of these assignments? And are we helping them be more efficient at what they're already doing? Or are we in fact helping them transform? So that would be an example of where the employee voice has become more critical than maybe other outside expectations. And I don't know if it's fair to describe it this, but it's almost like a dynamic unionizing. It's not unionizing around benefits and pay, 
but it's unionizing around ideals that that people share and those groups can change they can shift so it's it's uh something made possible by the networks that that we have judy this is great i'm glad we've had a chance to chat today like i said i've admired your work and work of the aspen institute for those of you listening judy's book is the six new rules of business creating real value in a changing world Um, I'd encourage you to get a copy of that. Learn more about the Aspen Institute if you're not aware of it. And Judy, thank you again. It's great to be with you. All right. Thank you, David. I enjoyed it.